If you're sick of the mainstream sports outlets, well, so was I. So I started my own show. I'm Shane Larson, and this is the Game Time Guru. It's different than other talk shows. I'm providing a panoramic view on sports so you can see them through a different lens. So buckle up and let's go. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome out to the Game Time Guru Podcast. I am your host, Shane Larson. This week is going to be a super exciting interview for me. I'm bringing on a guest that I met actually in Nashville, Tennessee for a work event. Uh, but before we get started, i got to remind everybody that if you have not done so already, make sure to follow me on my social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Those are where I pretty much live right now on social media, but I have opened up TikTok if you guys want to follow me there at the Game Time Guru. Go follow me there. Also, if you guys want an Audible free trial, go check out some of the books. You guys know I mentioned you know, Tyson Fury's new book uh, that came out, Behind the Mask. Go to audibletrial.com slash thegametimeguru. Get a 30-day free trial to have an audio book and listen to it. So if you want to check out his new book, you can listen to that. Sign up for a free trial through my link that I'll put here in the description. Guys, like I said, I am super stoked to bring on our guest this week. Uh, when I first started the show a little over three years ago, my idea was to show people that sports are not just a bunch of dumb jocks. Like athletes are not dumb jocks. Sports are not just for dumb jocks. I hated that whole stereotype. I hated that, that whole feel. People would, would you know, look down upon people who love sports because they thought that it didn't do anything for you. Like it's just, just sports. But in reality, my whole idea was to bring athletes and former athletes and analysts and anybody who's in the sports world onto the show to share their stories, to show you what they have learned through the sporting, like their sports journey. Today is no different. I'm bringing on Dre Baldwin from DreAllDay.com. He's a former professional basketball player, and now he's utilizing what he learned in his basketball journey into his business that he's running, and he's very successful at it. So, Dre, thanks so much for joining the show. Absolutely, Shane. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited. Yeah, man, this is it's super awesome. And like I said, guys, I met Dre in Nashville, Tennessee, a random connection. We were doing a, an event for work. I work for ClickFunnels full time. Uh, Dre happened to be at the event. We connected there. And then, you know, three, four weeks later, now here we are. Super, super stoked. As soon as I heard, you know, that Dre had played ball and he was telling me about his, his story, I was like, oh, this is the ideal guest for my show. So, Dre, let's, let's back it up real quick before we get into your, you know, your, the full story of like the professional side of things. I want to rewind things back to your, I guess, your high school days. Because yeah. as I was doing a little bit of research, correct me if I'm wrong, but it didn't seem like you were like, quote unquote, the star athlete or anything of your high school. Is that correct? Can you tell us a little bit more about your high school days playing basketball? Absolutely. I was the, whatever the opposite is of a star, I was that. <laughs> so <laughs> I started playing basketball. I didn't really start playing until I was age 14. I was always into sports coming. Where I'm from is Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So I was always into sports. So we played kickball, touch football in the driveway, maybe some basketball in somebody's backyard goal. You know, we would lower the hoop so we could dunk on it. Things like that, street football. And then I went into some baseball, football, then baseball. And it wasn't until around age 14 I started playing basketball seriously. And at that point, a lot of kids were already ahead of me, especially a kid who's any kid who's thinking about playing college or professional basketball. You've been playing since you were you know, five years old. So I was way behind the eight ball from anyone else and just for the goal that I had or ended up having. So I didn't make my high school varsity basketball team until I was a senior. And coming from where I came from at that time, we didn't even have junior varsity basketball. So and there was no freshman team. So you either made the varsity or you didn't play. So I didn't play for three years straight. The one year that I made the high school team, I sat on the bench. I averaged two points a game as a senior in high school. So at that point, age 18, graduating college, somebody would look at me and said, hey, kid, you're going to be great at something in life, but it's probably not going to be basketball. 
And that would have been completely reasonable and logical. But I was reasonable and logical, as they say, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. That's the short version. 100%, man. So that's super inspiring just to hear that because now I, now we're going to get into your, you know, the rest of your journey. But I do want to elaborate a little bit on that whole experience. So, man, it's, it's crazy that you said that. And I talk to a lot of people around here where I live. There's a lot of athletes that, you know, they play in high school. See, for me, I was a younger kid from my class. And so when I played, you know, I made varsity my senior year. But we also, we, I mean, we played sophomore, JV, and then varsity going up. So I didn't, like, not play for the whole time. I just didn't get to varsity until my senior year. But even then, like, I was young. I graduated when I was 17, and I was a young 17. Like, I was 16 for a couple of days my senior year. I always make jokes about that. Like, hey, I was a 16-year-old senior for a minute for, like, right. a couple of days. Like, I was, I was young, and I, and I really didn't bloom. Like, the difference between me when I was, like, 18, 19 years old compared to when I was 17 playing varsity basketball was completely different. But, like, I didn't bloom. And so I, I see a lot of these – these young kids that are playing, they might be sitting the bench and they pretty much think that, you know, it's kind of like what you just said, the reasonable logical thing is like, okay, let's move on. Let's go to college. Let's, let's get our degree. Let's move on to the next step in life. Uh, put your priorities where you need to have them. Um, but if they believe they can play and they have the actual skill set to play, which I think a lot of kids do, they just might be in a bad situation. I always encourage them to still at least try. So for you, maybe this could be a message to them. I don't even, when I get to that point, I'm like, well, I don't even know how, to, like what else advice like what other advice to give them to play because I don't even know the next steps if you don't play and you don't have the film on you how did you drag it into that next level to decide to play at the next level which would be collegiate basketball all right so graduating from high school I knew I was going to go to college even just on an academic level I wanted to go to college for a couple of reasons number one I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with my life I mean by age 16 I knew I wanted to play professional basketball but I also had the foresight to understand that Number one, basketball doesn't last forever, even if I was the greatest player in history. And number two, because of my resume up to that point or lack thereof, I also had a reasonable, I had a belief that it was reasonable to expect that maybe my basketball career may not happen or it may not happen so smoothly. So I needed to know what else I wanted to do with my life. So I wanted to go to school for that reason. And number two, being from where I'm from, Philadelphia, PA, I'm from a lower middle class background. I had never really been out of the city of Philadelphia. So I wanted to get out of the city and explore and see other areas of the world. So I wanted to go as far away from home as I could, at least for four years to go to college. Now, I didn't get that far away. I ended up going to Penn State, Altoona from Philadelphia, which is like four hours away. That was far enough. That was right. pretty much as far as I had been to that point in my life. So before I even got to Altoona, though, my parents came to me. Actually, let me back up in the story. Okay. During my senior year of high school, the um and the school I went to a school in North Philadelphia, ninety nine percent black, and the guidance counselor. We were us seniors. We would always hang out in the guidance counselor's office, probably doing lunch hours and things like that, because we were all applying to colleges. And I went to what is known as a magnet school. I'm sure they had those everywhere in Philadelphia. So I had, a, based against all the other students in Philadelphia and the country, I had a pretty high GPA, even though I was an average student at the magnet school. I was like a higher level student against all the students, if, if that makes sense. Right. So I knew I was going to college. I had all these college acceptances. I got accepted to like 14 colleges because you know how they would send you the fee waiver because you have good grades. So I just applied to all of them and I got into like all these schools, but I had no reason to go to any one of them. None of them was offering me any money, academic or athletic. So I'm just trying to find a school. So one day a recruiter from Morehouse College, which is a HBCU in Atlanta, Georgia, came to visit our school because they recruit young black men. Morehouse is an all-men's college. So Martin Luther King, uh, Spike Lee, these are people who went to Morehouse. 
And he offered me a 50% scholarship, academic scholarship, just based on my, was it the SAT? Yeah, the SAT score and my GPA in high school. So my parents were really excited. The counselor was excited. My classmates were congratulating me. I'm like, man, yeah, I'm going to go to Morehouse. And I found out Morehouse was a D2 in basketball. I was like, all right, I could try out, make the team at Morehouse, walk on. And about a week before college graduation, and I've told everybody I'm going to Morehouse, my parents come to me and they say, well, look, son, we've been running the numbers on this. And even with 50% of your tuition paid for, the other 50% is so high because you're an out-of-state student. For those who know, when you're out-of-state in college, it's more money. We would be in debt for the rest of our lives trying to pay off those loans. So you can't go to Morehouse because you don't have any money. So I ended up not going to Morehouse. I got accepted to Penn State, which is in-state Philadelphia. And I went to a branch campus of Penn State called Penn State Abington, which is 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia. And Penn State Abington is what's known as a commuter campus, meaning they have no dorms, no housing. So you live at home home, the same home you've been living in, and go to school. So basically, I was in 13th grade my freshman year of high school, I mean college. That's the way that it felt. But I did walk on to the basketball team. And now I'm finally answering your question. So I'm sorry, Shane, for everybody who's listening, this is what I do. I give context. I love, I no, no, no. I love this. I appreciate you giving okay. context. So thank you. All right, great. So Penn State Abington, uh, they at that time, right now Penn State Abington is a D3 school, if you look it up, NCAA D3. But at the time, they weren't even Division Three. They were, I think, what was known as Provisional Division Three. So they were trying to get to D3. But then you have to be in this provisional period for like five years before you get in, something like that. And the way Abington was set up at the time was you could only play sports for two years if you went to the school. So you could go there for four years and get a degree, or but you could only play sports for two. But a lot of students who would go to the branch campus of Penn State, like Abington, for two years, then they would go to State College for the other two to graduate. So I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew I was at Abington that year. That was one thing I knew. And the second thing I knew was I wanted to get the hell out of Abington because I wanted to get out of my parents' house and go get a real college life experience even more than I wanted to play basketball. So I walk on, oh, so walking on to the team, finally. I, re- I knew there was a team there. I didn't know who the coach was. I didn't know who any of the players were. I didn't know anything. My first time on the Penn State Abington campus was my first day of class, freshman year of college. I went and found a basketball court. Now, Abington's a very small campus. They got four buildings, basically. Two for classrooms. One is the lunchroom, the cafeteria, and one is the gym, the basketball court. Okay. So I found a basketball court. And I just start asking around, when do people play basketball here? And at that campus, they had this thing called the common hour. So from 12 to 1, there are no classes. Nobody has class. Wow. So nice. people will hang out in the gym and play, play pickup, right? So I figured, all right, 12 o'clock, common hour. I'm going to bring my shoes. I'm going to come in here. And whoever shows up, we'll just see what's what. I had no idea who was who, nothing. I knew nothing. Nobody knew me. I just showed up there and started playing pickup basketball. And within about a week, Word got around, like, hey, this freshman kid, he can actually play. He's, he's going to be on the basketball team. So some of the guys from the team, they eventually would trickle in. And, no, no of course, word spreads through the grapevine. Abington's a small campus, so word got around pretty quick. And black guys walking around a Penn State campus, sorry, we can't hide. So it was pretty easy to spot <laughs> me walking around there. So by the time basketball tryouts came around, the coach knew who I was. He had seen me playing a little bit in pickup. He had a pretty good idea that I could play. So it was a foregone conclusion I was going to make the team. So that's how I walked on to my freshman year team at Penn State Abington. I was later recruited to a different school, but we'll get to that. Wow. No, this is the thing. Again, I'm going to say thank you for the context behind all of that because we need to know the story. I think that's super important for athletes to hear right now. Like 
it wasn't just a simple journey for you. I mean, when I tell right. kids that, you know, they can still play at the next level, it doesn't mean that like, Hey, you know, that's why I always get stuck when I say, how are you going to do it? How are you going to get to the next level? Right. I don't know, but like you still can play. And so for me, like listening to the, to the story that you have regarding that, it shows that it wasn't just a simple process. Like you send out something to your coach and they were like, Oh yeah, come try. No, you actually kind of had to put your foot forward and actually test it and, you know, put your foot in the water a little bit and, and get your name out there. And then, you know, people started talking and then all of a sudden, you know, opportunities come about, but you did take advantage of the opportunities when they presented themselves. So you're here at this small school. Um, and you played for two years, you said, or it was it only for one? Let's talk about that a little bit because you got recruited to another school where you were able to leave and kind of right. get out of, uh, you know, further away from your hometown, like you said. But how did right. those first two, or how was, how was your first, you know, I guess, uh, experience with the collegiate basketball levels? Coming from someone who played, you know, off the bench in high school, your senior year averaging two points a game, to playing at the collegiate level, even though it was like a smaller tier collegiate school, what was the experience like trying to get to that next level and, and actually playing there? Well, my freshman year, you know, it was only two things that I knew walking onto that campus my freshman year was that I'm going to find a basketball court and just play. And that's how I ended up making the team. So I only played at Abington for one year because okay. this is what happened. So I get on the team and I became a starter probably within five games. And I was starting, I became a starter based, basically off of talent, Shane. I became a starter off of talent. The campus wasn't that big. So it's not like we were teaming with all these, you no know, blue chip recruits. These guys were. These are guys who have played in high school. Some of them even played four years of high school ball, but none of these guys was any star type of basketball players. If they were, frankly, we wouldn't be at Penn State Abington. So I became a starter because I was probably the most talented guy on the team, but I was not the best performer on the team for two reasons. Number one, I didn't have enough game experience. I did not know what to do in a game because I just started playing at 14. I played in some local leagues in my neighborhood where I'm from, Mount Airy in Philadelphia. I sat on a bench my one year of high school ball, so I didn't have any real seasoning of actually playing in games that mattered on a basketball court. I played a ton of pickup basketball and one-on-one, three-on-three on the asphalt, but I didn't have a lot of experience, what we used to call under the whistle, meaning when there are referees, scoreboards, and coaches. I didn't have that experience. So I didn't know what to do on the court, even though I had talent. So I, would, I was up and down haphazard as far as my performance. And the other side of it was I did not understand at all the mental game side of the game, specifically showing up and working hard every day in practice. That was one of my biggest challenges in college. I would work really hard when it came to working on my game by myself because I was choosing to do it. But when there was somebody else making me do it, we had to do the same stuff every day and deal with these other players and work on defensive drills. And I would just mentally kind of zone out on that. So I didn't work as hard as I could have my freshman year. And I had a lot of run-ins with the coach because of that. So that's what happened my freshman year, but I was a starter. I played, but I mean, I wasn't, I didn't set the world on fire. I probably averaged 10 points a game ish, something like that. So my summer after my freshman year, actually when the season ended, summer didn't even happen yet. So basketball season ended around late March or early March. And I would just still come into the gym during common hour and play pickup with whoever. And after the basketball season ended, I noticed something peculiar is that all my teammates from the basketball team, I never saw those guys again. After the season ended, they never came and played pickup again because a lot of them, they were playing their second year at Abington. Therefore, their basketball careers were essentially over. They weren't aspiring to go anywhere in ball, so they never showed up again. So I'd be playing pickup against some guy, some dude out of some cafeteria class who wasn't even a basketball player, but I was just playing with whoever showed up. Right. So okay. there was another guy 
there was an older guy because with commuter campuses like that, it's similar to a community college, the type of people you see there. You got a lot of older students. You got people in their mid-20s, maybe even early 30s who are going to college, but they're, they're around. They're all mixed in with these 18-year-olds like me. And there was this guy from New York, and he was big into – he wasn't a player, but he, was, he liked basketball. And he knew a lot of the street ball guys. And if any of you remember this time period, we're talking early 2000s. I went to college from 2000 to 2004. So at this time, the big thing in basketball was New York street ball, specifically the N1 mixtape. Shane, I'm uh, sure nice. you remember that. Oh, yeah, absolutely, right. man. Right. So this guy, he was from New York. I don't remember where, maybe Queens or the Bronx, one of those. He would always pull me aside. and He saw that I had talent, and he knew where I was from. He would tell me stories about the street ball guys in New York that he knew and this and that. And he would come and grab me out of the pickup gym and say, dude, why are you playing pickup with these dudes? You just dunked on this fat kid. He's not going anywhere. Why are you out here playing with them? Come in here with me. And I'm going to tell you where he was. He was in this place that I never really spent time in my life. It's called the weight room. <laughs> so, he okay? started, all right, so he started bringing me in the weight room. He started showing me how to do bench presses and squats and curls and you know, skull crushes with the triceps. I had never lifted weights in my life. He told me, like, yeah, you need to start lifting. So he introduced me to the weight room, and I got a little bit familiar with it. The school year ends. So that summer, I was working. I had a part-time job at CVS that summer yeah, after my freshman right. year. All right, so – I would work usually in the evenings, like four or five o'clock till close. So what I would do is wake up in the morning and I would drive out to the Abington campus about 20 minutes from home and I would work on my game. And the gym was completely empty. Nobody came in there. None of my teammates. I never seen anybody. I had the weight room to myself, the cardio room and the basketball court all to myself all day, every all that summer of this is 2001. And I would just work on my game every single day. So this is what happened. This is how things changed for me. One day. I go to the gym, work on my game as usual. I had not eaten breakfast that morning. So I left the stuff. I parked my car next to the gym, but I walked across campus to one of those other four buildings, the cafeteria. I'm going to the cafeteria to get something to eat. I'm walking out of the cafeteria. This dude just approaches me. Don't know this guy. He approaches me. He says, hey, man, what position are you, boy? And I'm looking at this dude crazy. Like, I know I don't know this guy. As I said, it's a small campus. I know all the black people. This guy's black. He's tall. I know I don't know him. He's walking up to me, asking me what position I play. And mind you, saying I'm from Philadelphia. Like, where I'm from, you don't walk up to people you don't yeah. know and start talking. Like, we don't do that. We don't even say hi to people we don't know. So he starts talking to me, and I'm looking at him crazy, and I'm like, how you know I even play? He's like, man, I'm just asking. So we start a conversation. I tell him I play ball, whatever, whatever. He pulls out his business card. He starts talking about, you know, what do you major in? He's asking me stuff about academics, and I'm, I still know who this guy is. But I'm looking at his business card. Now, he has two jobs on his business card. He has a name and his phone number, his email. I don't know who this is, so I don't care about that. But he had two jobs. One of them was that he was the head of recruiting for a college. And he had a second job was that he was the head men's basketball coach. So this guy was actually the head coach at Penn State Altoona, which was NCAA Division III, another branch campus of Penn State. But at that time, it was a higher level than the campus I was at. Right. And this guy was recruiting me on the spot. And what's crazy about this is he had no idea who I was. He didn't know my name. He had never saw me play. He had never saw footage of me. Nobody tipped him off that he could find me there. He was on campus doing a different job, but he told me years later, he said, when I saw you walk by, he said, Dre, I know a basketball player when I see one. And you looked like the kind of player that I knew I needed for my roster the upcoming season. That's why I approached you. So he approached me blindly, not even knowing if I could play or not, and recruited me to Penn State Altoona. That's how I got recruited to Altoona. And the reason I always tell younger players, especially coming up, the reason that happened, that happenstance lucky break, was because I was coming up to campus every day on my own volition 
to work on my game. That's how I got recruited to Penn State at Altoona. And I finished my collegiate career at Altoona. That, just hearing you talk about that, is like I'm trying to visualize it myself since obviously I was not there. I'm yeah. thinking to myself, like, how in the hell? Like, that's so crazy how that all worked. And I love that you said that, you know, it's because you were doing that yourself. Like, you were putting in the work every single day and things happen. Like, believe what you want about, you know, any type of, like, superior being. But, like, sometimes I feel like someone's upstairs playing chess and they're putting people in the right positions uh, for you in your life if you're doing the work that you're supposed to be doing. Um, to me, when you're saying that, it's like, yes, you were doing the work that you needed to do. Then all of a sudden, checkmate, got the right position at the right time. And uh, right. all of a sudden, you have this additional opportunity to go play ball at the other school that you were just talking about in Altoona. Um, super, super cool. And when you were talking about the and one experience, just for anybody listening, I didn't know that story yet. Like, I don't know that I'm learning this along with everybody else that's listening to the show. So when you're talking about the and one guy, like I actually brought on an and one, um, an, an old school and one baller, his name's Jay Brantley, but he was from the West coast and he was on my show talking about his experience with the and one mixtape tour. But like that, it, it brings me back to my, my childhood, man. Like so weird. Cause I was, I was younger and you know, watching all that stuff. So hearing like you talk about that over there and like, you know, just the experiences you had is super, super cool. Now you go over to Altoona, you're, you're, you're playing over there. It's a D3 school. Yeah. Talk about the experience you had. What was it like? So you, you played for this coach, I'm assuming. What was, what was your relationship yeah. with this coach like for the remaining uh, part of your collegiate career? Well, that sophomore year, I had the same problem that I had my freshman year because I had not addressed that problem and nobody had helped me address it, which was I did not yet have the discipline to work within the framework of a team, practicing hard every day, doing what the coach says. Not like I would disobey the coach, but I just didn't work hard and bring the right type of energy and focus every single day to practice which basically led me to not earning the right type of playing time. So I didn't play as much as I should have played my sophomore year, even though I was once again, probably the most talented player on the team, but I was not the best performer on the team because of that. And our team was actually terrible that year. We went like two and 25, something Ooh, like that. That's tough. The coach who recruited me loses his job after my sophomore year. Now, those of you who don't know college sports understand that being on that college sports team, especially a sport with a small number of players like basketball, a big part of it is your connection to that coach. So if that coach recruited you, you're going to have a spot and y'all will work out whatever you need to work out. Now, if a new coach comes in, and he's not the guy who recruited you. Your position is in jeopardy. We get a new coach summer after my sophomore year. He used to play in the NBA. His name is Armin Gilliam. Now, he actually passed away about 10 years ago, but he had played 10 years in the NBA. A well-known name from people who are hardcore basketball fans from the 90s, at least. Gilliam comes in. I remember the day that I met him because I stayed on campus my sophomore year after Altoona, at Altoona, and I took classes. So the day that he got hired in the middle of the summer, it's like July, I go over to meet him at his press conference. And I remember shaking his hand and him looking me in my face and me looking at him, and the guy was just looking right through me. It was like I wasn't even standing there. And I took that message to mean, this unspoken message to mean, like, dude, uh, you're probably not going to be on my team next year. So you better start figuring out some contingency plans. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, man, I'm basically a walk-on all over again. So I, and I wasn't leaving Altoona because I had no prospects to transfer. So I spent the rest of that summer with a renewed vigor working on my game. I knew I had to earn my spot all over again as a junior. Long story short, I did earn my spot. I made the basketball team. Gilliam comes in, cuts nine guys. We had nine returning players. Six of them get cut. Only three of us made the team who were returnees from the previous season. Only three of us. And then he rode one of those guys off the team. 
I stayed on, another guy stayed on. I lasted eight games, and I got rode off the team. I ended up kicked off the basketball team as a junior, and I didn't even play my last year and a half of college basketball. I went to college, I graduated, but my last half of my junior year and all of my senior year, I was not even on the basketball team. Wow. Okay. I took a turn from what I was expecting. I'm not going to lie. It almost sounds like a scene out of Coach Carter, if we're being 100% honest. Holy cow. Okay. So let's, let's go from there then. So before we move on to the, the, the next step in, in your, your career with basketball, yeah. what would you say at that time, Dre, like if we're going back to the junior in college, Dre Baldwin, what were you thinking and what was your mindset like at that time? Were you frustrated with the coach? What were the emotions that you were going through when uh, you were basically off the team, you weren't playing anymore, and did you think you were ever going to play basketball again? Well, the way that I saw that the coach was doing his thing, I may, I may be kind of biased, but the guy wasn't that great when it came to coaching. He, was a, he had been, of course, great as a player. He played in the NBA. He would have been a great trainer, but he was not a great coach because he didn't really know how to deal with he didn't really know how to talk to people. He knew how to talk as a player. It was a different kind of conversation that you have as a coach. And my proof to that is that after he got fired in three years, he never got another coaching job again. But the point is, to answer your question, uh, it wasn't even frust- It was somewhat frustration. But at the same time, I understood where the coach was coming from because he pretty much had an end for any players who had played under the previous regime because the old coach who had gotten fired he didn't like the fact that he had gotten fired. So the two coaches, my coach who recruited me and the new coach, they didn't like each other. So since I had been recruited by the previous coach, this new guy was always looking at me. He was always looking at me funny. Like, all right, you may still have ties or loyalty to the old coach. So if you don't do what I'm saying, I'm going to just get rid of you because you just might be a cancer to this new regime that I had. So I understood that I kind of got caught in the middle of that. So I completely understood that. So when I ended up off the basketball team, it wasn't even that I was mad at him. Because I still had friends who were on the basketball team. And I was still cool. There are guys I'm still cool with to this day who were on that basketball team. So I was never mad at that coach. I understood what the situation was. And I understood, you know, the decision that I needed to make. I could have went back to him and said, hey, let me back on the team. But I chose not to do that. And I knew that where I wanted to go was play pro basketball. So here's the thing that the insight that I had here, Shane, was that coming out of this school was a Division three school. I looked at a few guys who had come out of, my conference that our school's conference and players who have played in my school who had done well i'm talking average 20 points a game put up great stats made all conference i asked myself all right what did these guys do they put up these great stats had these awards had these accomplishments in this league where did they go after that none of them had played professional basketball even though they had these great stats and all these points and all this so i reasoned that okay putting up great stats at this school and or in this conference does nothing for your professional basketball prospects. So if I'm going to go pro, it probably doesn't matter what kind of stats I put up at this school. It's probably going to matter what I do as soon as I get out of this school. I'm going to have to prove myself anyway because I knew guys who had played great at our school and didn't get a pro career based off of that. They still had to go prove it as if they were nobody all over again. So I figured, you know what, let me just spend this last year and a half working on my game by myself and not waste time being on a basketball team and get myself ready for the pros because that's where I'm going anyway. Crazy, man. Okay, I love this. And it actually speaks to your work ethic. Obviously, we're kind of seeing a trend here. You work hard and you don't give up. That's the whole entire process. Like throughout your career, we're talking high school level. Um, Now we're into the collegiate side of things. And now you still have that goal in mind. Your ultimate goal was to play professional basketball. Now you're putting in the work so that you can go and do that. And 
you're doing some of the research too. The fact that you just did all that yourself, like realizing, okay, the stats don't necessarily mean anything. We're, they would have to go through the same thing that I'm going to go through. So why not just get the work done, put it in and get ready to go? Because stats don't necessarily mean you're going to get an automatic job over there. You're going to have to prove yourself anyways. The fact that you researched that shows that you were hitting it from the mental side of things and the physical side of things as you were putting in work. Now, you decide to go overseas. Let's talk about the very beginning stage of your, your professional basketball career. For anybody who doesn't understand the overseas type of game or the, the professional side of things, if you don't make the NBA, have you, what even is the first step that you have to take, Dre? Is it just getting an agent and seeing what's out there? Um, because I've spoken to a lot of different players, female and male, who have played overseas, specifically in the sport of basketball. And, you know, each one of them has a different journey. So I'm just curious for you, what was your first step to even getting to that next level to get your people to have eyes on you to even be able to have a shot to play for somebody? Well, Shane, I wish my first step had been to get an agent because no agent <laughs> wanted to sign me. <laughs> I was coming out of a division three school that had never produced a professional player. There were no pros coming out of my conference, let alone my school. So again, as I had reasoned, I knew that coming out of my school, no matter what you did, no pro team was looking at you because who'd you do it against? You're playing against people. There are no pros that you beat in order to score your 25 points per game. So I, coming out, I graduated college 2004. I had a degree in business with a focus in management and marketing from Penn State University. I went with that degree and I got myself a job at Foot Locker. So I was an assistant manager of Foot Locker for six months. Then I quit that job and I got, my job, got myself a job selling gym memberships at Bally Total Fitness, which is, rest in peace, I think they're now out of business. But I sold memberships at Bally Total Fitness. So the summer of 2005, so this is a year after graduation. Those are my two jobs. So thank you, Penn State, for my college degree. <laughs> and I worked that year. And the summer of 2005, I finally had saved up enough money to go to what we know as an exposure camp. And for those who don't know what that is, an exposure camp is like a job fair, but it's for athletes. What you do is show up and not hand out resumes and shake hands, but you bring your uniform and your sneakers and you actually play your game against a whole bunch of other people who have the same desires that you have. A bunch of other pro basketball hopefuls or some guys who may have played a little bit already, but they're looking to further their career. And only people in the audience are not just fans because nobody knows us. They are agents, GMs, scouts, coaches, and owners from all around the world who are looking for players to sign to their pro teams. So I went to that event. And while that sounds like the way I describe it, it sounds like a great opportunity. It's also kind of a meat market because everybody's trying to get a job. Right. And mind you, this is a team sport. So you're playing five on five with four other guys who are all trying to show out and all trying to look good. So why would they pass you the ball? Why would they set a screen for you? Why would they help you if you get beat on defense? The short answer is they won't because everybody's trying to look good. So you right. have to kind of figure out a way to not look like a jerk hogging the ball. But at the same time, you got to be kind of selfish because if you're not, you will never see the ball. So long story short, at that exposure camp, I played pretty well. I had some highlight dunks and that footage, I got that footage from that exposure camp. I used that to go and find myself an agent. And then I'll give you the cliffhanger for the next part of my career was Coming out of the exposure camp, we played four games in two days. This camp was in Orlando, Florida. Okay. And just to give you some background, we drove, me and one of my college teammates drove from Philly to Orlando in a rental car Friday afternoon. The camp started at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning. And if any of you have ever driven from Philly to Orlando, it takes about 15 hours. We arrived in the parking lot of the venue at about 9.05 a.m. Saturday morning. We did not sleep Friday night, walked right into the gym, paid the $250 in cash at the table, and we walked right in and started 
playing at the exposure camp. Now, these are one of the things that you can do when your body is 23 years old. Now, I probably <laughs> couldn't do that now, but I did it then. So I showed up there, played well, we drive back to Philadelphia. I get in a couple of weeks, I get the footage from this exposure camp, four games in two days. Now, some of you who are, may not be old enough, but Shane, I'm sure you remember, this footage was not a YouTube link. It was not a DVD. It was a VHS tape. Right. Right. So the VHS tape, I started calling agents before I even had the tape, but I knew it was coming. I started calling every agent I could find on Google or on this website called Eurobasket.com. It had a list of agents. Every agent I could find, a phone number or email address, I reached out. I said, hey, here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Here's my collateral. Because I understood coming out of my D3, I couldn't reach out to an agent because what do I have to offer them? I had no footage. I had no stats. I hadn't done anything anywhere that mattered. So I couldn't call an agent because they're going to say, okay, what do you have? I didn't have anything. So when I finally had that footage and I had a scouting report from the exposure camp, now I have something to offer. I can say, here's my resume. Here's what I did against a bunch of other pro players. And here's proof of me doing it. You can watch it yourself. So I reached out to a bunch of agents, about 20 agents contacted me back and said, okay, uh, sir, show me what you have. Let me see what you got. So I went and made copies of this VHS tape. Mind you, young people listening to this, this is not sending a link to 20 different email addresses. This is going to Eckerd, the drugstore, buying 10 blank VHS tapes. I had a double-decker VCR, and I would make copies of my own footage and physically mail them in a bubble mailer at the USPS with my own money and ship those out all around the world to all these agents who asked for my tape. I sent it out to about 20 agents. One agent called me back after receiving the tape. That agent became my agent. He got me signed to my first contract that I was in Columbus, Lithuania. And I'm going to give you one more piece to cliffhanger here. Since that footage was on a VHS tape, Shane, I knew that I probably wouldn't hold on to a VHS tape forever. I knew by the time I was 83 instead of 23, something might happen to that footage. And that was like my golden ticket into my career. And I knew that if I wanted to show my great grandkids that I used to be good at basketball, I had to have, had to have some proof. So I wanted to hold on to that VHS tape. So I took it to an audiovisual store. They put it on a data CD. I put the CD in my parents' HP Pavilion desktop computer. I put that footage on this brand new website that had just came out that allowed you to put up video for free. It was called YouTube.com. So that's how I started two careers at the same time in the summer of 2005. Dude, that is so awesome the whole this is have you ever thought about making a movie out of this entire story by the way well i've written a book so maybe we can okay. get it translated into a movie <laughs> okay so this is what i'm saying like this is such yeah. a cool story to hear the 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 whole background some people might have thought like hey when we started this interview okay you played in high school went to the went to college went to pro okay now right. cool no there's a lot that went into your whole entire process of getting over there that is insane, man. That's super cool, Dre. And so then you got that. You wanted to keep the footage somewhere, so you got it onto, onto YouTube, which we will talk about in just a minute, uh, your YouTube channel, which um, is freaking awesome. Um, I was taking a look at some of the stuff, even from videos from eight years ago, uh, crazy amounts of views. Um, obviously, you got a lot of knowledge to share with people, and we'll kind of get into that in, in, in a minute. Um, so now, first off, the exposure camp. For anyone listening, I've heard of these before. Um, you hear about them every once in a while but they're not like a, a very well-known thing amongst a lot of athletes. It's it, depending on the region that you're in, you got to kind of have connections to hear about these exposure camps. Um, I'm not even sure how often they do those anymore. I know they do them for a lot of the G league teams. Um, they'll have like random camps in the region that people will get to, but you have to kind of be in the know and, and network with people around in the sport that you're playing. I think that's crazy. I mean, the whole fact that you drove there and, and played, like you said, I've heard this, I've heard similar stories from those who have gone to those. Um, 
as far as like, how do you even play when everybody's trying to every man for themselves, you know, and you've got to find a way to make yourself look good. So um, right. it's crazy to hear from someone who's actually been there. Now, Dre, we get into you're in, you're in Lithuania. Some people that look at, you know, some people that look at overseas basketball, I should say, they always think it's like the most lucrative career, super simple. Cause some people do have a pretty decent career. They'll make it in the 50, 60, 70,000 a year. It's not taxed. There's benefits to it. You know, some of you get your housing paid for your cell phone paid for. So, I mean, there are some benefits to some of it, but sometimes you're not making 50, 60, $70,000 a year. Obviously not everyone's making what Jimmer Fredette was making and Stefan Marbury when he went over to China. Like not, not everyone's making a $3 million contract. Um, even Diana Taurasi and, and them who went overseas, they were making millions for, for the women's game too. Like not everybody does that. Uh, sometimes people pay to go. Um, I've heard that, that there's, you know, tricky contract situations and stuff like that. Um, not, not to mention you all, you have the cultural differences that you have to learn how to live overseas. So let's talk about this. I mean, you were used to, you know, you lived away from home, four hours away from home, going to college. Talk about your, uh, first year playing overseas, what it was like, what the transition was like. Um, you don't necessarily have to tell us about money, how much you were making or anything like that, but just kind of explain the whole process of now you're playing the professional level. Was it what you expected? Was the competition what you expected? And how did you kind of fit in with the, the professional team that you were on in Lithuania? Sure. Well, first, let me uh, touch on that exposure camp thing that you mentioned. The thing with the exposure camps is, like you said, it is kind of like a shadow industry in that there's no, there's no governing body for overseas basketball. Unlike with the NBA, you have the Players Association. They don't have that for overseas players. So with exposure camps, you can find them if you just go around on Google and look at camps. That's kind of how I found mine. But the thing is, you have no idea if it's going to be any good or not. You have no idea who's running it. You don't know who else is going to show up, the other players that you're playing against. Because the thing about the exposure camp is similar to what I said at my D3 school is not only matters what you do, but it matters who did you do it against. Right. Are you playing well against people who can play? Or are you playing against people who can't? And also, you, don't want, you want to make sure you don't go too deep in the water playing against people who are so much better than you that you don't do anything. So it's kind of a fine balance that you have to find. So with the exposure camps, it is kind of a, a shadow industry, and you do got to get a little bit lucky, but and we'll probably get into this, but I invested over the course of my career, I invested over $10,000 in going to exposure camps. Now, not to say I didn't make any of that back, but I invested at least 10,000 in cash between camp fees, hotels, food, travel, flights, et cetera. But anyway, to answer your question, again, into Lithuania, I was, first of all, very excited because I've been telling everybody that I knew that this is the thing that I want to do. I'm not going to be, a, I'm not going to work at Foot Locker for the rest of my life. I'm not going to sell gym memberships. I am going to play professional basketball. So when I got that footage from that exposure camp, I was excited because I could show people, hey, I told you all I could play. Look at this. I knew the people who I went to school with who watched me sit in the bleachers my last year and a half, knowing that I had talent. I said, okay, I told you I was going to do something in basketball and I didn't do it in college. I didn't get a chance to finish it in college. Look at this. Now look what I'm about to do. So when I signed that contract, it was like vindication. It was like all this stuff that I've been through, this worked out. And this was only five years removed from sitting on the bench during my last high school basketball game. So in five years, I went from sitting at the end of the bench to being a professional basketball player. So I was really excited about that. And as far as what it's like getting on a court overseas, I mean, even the first practice is that they just throw you out there. They throw you to the wolves. And you got to understand that Professional basketball teams overseas do not care about your backstory or what you've been through or when you were sitting on a bench or any of that stuff. All they care about is, listen, we're paying you, so either you can play or you can't. And if you can't play, they will get rid of you immediately. 
And when I say immediately, I mean you might not make it to the first game to show what you can do if you don't show what you can do in the first practice. They will fire you after a practice. And I know players to whom that has happened. They got fired after a practice, didn't even make it to a game. So I remember my first practice, they put me at the point guard position and told me to run a pick and roll. I had never played point guard in my life <laughs> up to that point because I'd always, I'm 6'4", so, but I went to a D3 school. Now the D1, I would have been a point guard, but at a D3, I had the coaches playing me a power forward and center sometimes. Right. I played damn near all five positions. So I didn't have a lot of experience playing point guard. So he's telling me to play pick and roll. So I'm kind of just doing what I think it's supposed to look like. But then I basically just said, forget it. I just played the way that I knew how to play. Just score, be athletic, play above the rim. Because I knew my, my athleticism, my ability to play above the rim, that was kind of my, my, my main thing in basketball, probably for the first half of my career, then it was shooting the second half of my career. So really it was just about getting out there and just going and showing why they signed me. And it was really the athleticism that got me to stand out. It's the same thing, actually, that worked for me at that exposure camp. I got a couple of dunks, and everybody knew who I was because of those dunks. So it was really you know, the funny thing about not only basketball, but it, it mirrors itself in life, is that you don't have to be from top to bottom in every aspect better than everybody else. Sometimes it's just you are on at the moment where everybody's watching you, and you do something great just at that moment. And that one moment will pay for the rest of your career just because you did something right there. I mean, I remember playing in Mexico a year after that. And I might score two points in a game, but my two points was a highlight dunk. And at the end of the game, I'm signing more autographs than the guy who had 30. But his 30 was a very efficient, boring 30. But I had that two points and a dunk, and everybody knew me off of that. And sometimes in life, that's just the way it works, that you're just on at that moment when everybody's watching. And people remember that about you. And that one moment can help get you your next job and your next job and your next job. So at that exposure camp, again, I had about three or four dunks. My highlight video started with, guess what? Those three or four dunks, because those are the things that people are going to remember. It wasn't that I played so great all of every game, and those games are really sloppy, but it was just the fact that I had those moments that let people remember you, and that helped me get my next gig, next gig, next gig. That's such good information too. It's just something like, again, you can apply it to real life. Like you just said, super interesting. So you mentioned you put that onto YouTube, that exposure camp video. Is it still on there? Oh yes. Okay. We need <laughs> yeah. to check that out. So uh, I'll be checking it after this, this interview. And for anybody listening, make sure to check that out too. I'm going to link it to you in the description when we post this. So you mentioned one thing that just came to mind while you were talking, Dre, is that you said, okay, Lithuania and then the next year in Mexico and yeah what came to mind was the contract situation playing uh, professional basketball outside of the national basketball association. So overseas, yeah. if you will, typically they're one, two year contracts and they're not as stable. That's one thing that people don't realize is like basketball overseas, while it's another opportunity to play uh, when you're not playing, you know, if you want to play professional basketball, that is an opportunity to get there, but it's not the stability is something that, that, you know, causes a lot of athletes, a lot of anxiety because it's not as stable. I mean, like you said, you could be cut after one practice, crying out loud. Mm -hmm. Typically the contract's about a year, two years max, um, typically speaking for the, for the average athlete. How many countries did you play in and what, how many teams would you say you played in during your entire professional career, which lasted how long again? Was it nine years? Nine years, eight countries, and I think that would be eight teams if I counted up. But as far as the contract situation, like you said, I don't know who you've talked to. You probably talked to players who came from a higher, higher level pedigree than what I came from. A one or two year contract would be generous. Your contracts are pretty much one day because if you have a bad day at practice or you play against another team that has one American and your team has one American and that guy kicks your butt, you might not be on the team for the next game. 
So it really is that volatile. So when I tell people it's one day, it is literally one day. Every single day you have to continue to uh, earn your job. So I went from, I'll tell you everywhere I was at, I went from Lithuania to, I played for a traveling team called the Harlem Ambassadors in the United States. We traveled all around the country in a 15 passenger van, believe it or not, taking turns driving the van. Then from there was Mexico. Then I was, I didn't have a job for a year. Then I went to Montenegro. Then I didn't have a job for half a year. Then I went to Germany. Then I didn't have a job for another half a year or so. Then I was in Croatia. Then another year without a job. Then I was in Slovakia. Then in between there was a short stint in London. And that was it. Holy that was it. cow. Dude, that's, that's a lot of like change in a relatively yeah. short amount of time. How did you handle that? Did, it, did that cause additional stress on you, Dre? Or was that kind of just what you were accustomed to at that point? Like not knowing what the next step was going to be and kind of like having to wait it out. Like what was that like for you on a, from a mental standpoint and emotional standpoint? It was actually fun. <laughs> I liked <laughs> traveling the world and seeing all these different places because I knew that, listen, I've never been on a family vacation. And when I was a kid, uh, I never went on a vacation. So the only times I've been out of the country, every stamp of my passport is because of my ability to play basketball and my ability to you know, hustle and create opportunities for myself. And I knew that, you know, this is back when Facebook was before Facebook became a sort of a kind of became kind of a cesspool in some right. places nowadays. But back then, you know, I would post pictures of where I was and I would have my high school or college peers they would leave comments and they would say, man, you're living the dream. You're living a movie out there. Even though sometimes I might be frustrated with my coach or I've had a bad practice or we lost the game, I always had to remind myself, like, yo, you're living a life that 99% of people you know will never live. And you're seeing places that most people will never go. Most people where I'm from never leave the city, let alone the state or the country. So I love the fact that I got to travel around and go to all these different places and get all these different experiences. I was never homesick. You know, I was at home for 19 years. So still to this, I'm 38 now. So it's been exactly 19 years since. So I'm not sick yet. So I love traveling the world, seeing different places and, you know, getting to have those experiences, whether it had been basketball or anything else. So it didn't bother me to go through all those changes. I actually really enjoyed it. I was excited every time I got to go to a new place. That's so freaking cool. Like, that's one thing I wanted to make sure that anyone who's listening, if you're you know, a listener for, of my show from the very beginning, or if you're relatively new to listening to my show, just understand that like sports, I say this all the time, they provide different opportunities and experiences for you that you can utilize in your real life. But this is just another example of that. Like for Dre, that was, that's something for him that he didn't get to experience in his life growing up. I mean, he obviously, you know, probably has a lot of stories that you could say were great when you're growing up living, you know, families, everything in your hometown, you probably love everybody, but like you wanted to have additional experiences outside of that. And basketball provided you with that opportunity. Um, that's what sports can do for you. If you leverage that, like that's not, people just think it's just a game. Well, it, whatever you think about that, that's great. But I'm telling you, it provides these additional opportunities. And if you take advantage of them, like you did, obviously you get to see, all the things that it opened up for you, you got to experience so much and, and travel the world, like you said. So that's, that's freaking awesome. A lot of us don't get to do that. Um, and that's, it's just something that, you know, basketball and hard work, of course, taking advantage of those opportunities when they presented themselves, uh, taking advantage of the moments they presented, you know, themselves to you. Like that's what happened. Um, now I want to know, you know, you played in all those, those countries, you had your experiences there. Um, 
what caused you, you know, when did you know that it was about time to, to call it good for basketball and kind yeah. of take that next step in your career? Because um, you kind of already had, you, you mentioned you had already started a second career. Like you had, you had your YouTube channel. We'll talk about that right now too. But like, when did you decide that basketball as a player was kind of done for you and you wanted to focus in on like your business side of life? That was in 2015. So to kind of close the gap between 2005 and 2015, as I explained when I was talking about the places I played, I had several years where I was not able to procure a contract where I just, nobody was on me. So during those years, I would you know, train people here and there. I would start, I would post the videos on YouTube sporadically and around between 2008 and 2010 is when I really started thinking about I started to have to think seriously, have some real conversations with myself because I'm getting into my mid and then late 20s. And I'm saying to myself, I got to start living like an adult because if this, con this next contract doesn't come, next one doesn't come, I can't be 35 still saying, well, I'm waiting for a contract. I need to get some power, some control over my own life. So I asked myself probably the best question I ever asked myself, which was how can I continue to do the thing that I love, which is being involved in basketball while at the same time having some power and control and making money from it. So when I asked myself that question, the answer was, well, look, you have this, this little fan base here over making these little videos on YouTube and you got a blog and you got a website. Why don't you just invest more into that? You control that. You decide when you get to work and when you don't, as opposed to a pro basketball team deciding when to hire you or not. So I started putting more content out. And around 2010, a lot of people had started asking me a lot of questions about helping them with basketball. Drake, can you give me some tips, some advice? Can you make a program for me? Can you evaluate my workout and tell me how good I am or what I need to work on? And I would usually say no, because I can't make custom programs for a thousand people. Well, I could, but I wasn't going to. And eventually somebody left a comment on one of my YouTube videos and they said, Dre, you work out every day, right? So why don't you just write down what you do and then put it out so everybody else can just do the same thing you do. We can just work out like you. And I said, you know what? That's a pretty good idea. Now, at this time, I just finished reading this book called The Four-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. Right. And Tim had, he was obviously an entrepreneur, very business-minded guy, and I've been reading his blog as well. So I said, yeah, I can put that out, but you all going to have to pay for it because I'm putting value out to you. You got to give value back. I said, would you be willing to pay for it? Mind you, this is in the YouTube comment section. This is back when you could have you know, a civilized conversation in the YouTube comment right, section. Right, right. <laughs> all right, so I... I say that and people said, yeah, we'll pay for it as long as it doesn't cost too much. Mind you, I'm talking to 13 to 18 year old kids. They don't have a lot of money. So I went and made the first program. It was just a simple ball handling program. And actually, let me back up. Since I was reading Tim Ferriss, he put this concept out there. I don't remember if it was in his book or on his blog, but he said very simply, go and get a free hosting platform. And this is a site called Weebly.com, which I believe still exists. So on Weebly, you just get a free hosting platform. You're going to go one-page website. This is what Tim said to do. T tell everybody what the name of your product is. Tell them what they're going to get in the product. And then tell them the price of the product. Then say, put a button there that says, if you want to buy this product for X number of dollars, click this button. And when they click the button, it goes to the second page. And on the second page, it says, hey, where this product is under construction, we're making it right now. But if you want it, put your email address in. And when it's ready, we'll email you. And Tim said... Then go on Google, Google Ads, put in $5 in Google Ads. This is back when you could put $5 in Google Ads and actually get a result. So I put, put $5 in Google Ads and send traffic to that webpage based on your keyword, whatever you're talking about. If you get people putting email addresses in on that second page, meaning they saw your product, they saw your ad, clicked on your ad, went to your site, saw the product, saw the price, and they want it, they put an email address in, 
that means you have a viable product and you should probably go make it. That's what I did. I went and did that. I got a couple email addresses. I said, I'm going to make this product. I went and made, I just wrote down my basketball dribbling workout, put it on a PDF document, put it up this brand new website called hoophandbook.com, right there on Weebly, one page HTML website. And I am not a designer. And I started selling that program. I put a YouTube video out and said, hey, introducing hoophandbook.com. People started buying that program. And I said, oh my God, I just took an idea from absolute zero, put it on the internet, and people gave me money for it. I said, this right here is going to be bigger than anything I do in basketball. The main reason being, I had 100% control of it. I created it from absolute nothing. And nobody could tell me when I could or couldn't do it, unlike in pro basketball. I knew at that point that my entrepreneurial career was going to be bigger than my basketball career. So that's, that seed was planted in 2010. I kept playing pro ball for five more years to finally answer your question, Shane. 2015, I was starting to get bored with working out. And that was the first time I'd ever felt that way. And I remember at this time, I was living in South Beach, Miami, and I decided to take a week off. I said, for this next week, I'm not going to work out. Now, I'm used to working out two, three times a day. On the court, weight room, conditioning. I said, I'm not going to work out at all. All I'm going to do is I'm going to go in the park in South Beach. I'm going to do yoga in the morning. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to spend the rest of the day just working and doing other things just to see how I feel. And if I I thought I would get stir crazy, like, man, I got to go to the gym and I go bursting through the doors of the gym because I just needed it. But I went through that week and I didn't need it. Mentally, I felt all right with not being in the gym. That's the first time in my life I'd ever felt like that. And that's the point where I said to myself, all right, it's time for me to walk away because I did not want to be the player who slowly declines in the game or they start cheating the game. I heard LeBron James say that once. You're cheating the game when you stop giving your full dedication to it, but you're still collecting the check. I didn't want to do that anymore. So that's in 2015. That's actually when I stopped playing basketball because I just wasn't excited about working on my game anymore as I had been for the previous, going back to age 14, the previous 20 years. You know what? That takes a lot of, uh, it's like self-reflection and it takes a lot of, uh, dedication and ownership is the word that I'm trying to find there too. Um, just realizing like, okay, you know, could I play probably, but if I don't put in the work, what's the point? And I really like that you use, you know, what LeBron James had said too, like, don't cheat the game. A lot of guys do that. You see a lot of guys do that because obviously money talks at some point, like you're still getting a check out of it. Um, but if you're not putting all, all your effort into it anymore and your passion's not there and you can start to see that there's opportunities outside of it, and that's really smart that you made that decision to, okay, it's provided me these opportunities. That's amazing. Now I'm going to utilize what I've been able to learn and, and leverage, and I'm going to move that over and, and go all in with, with my next step in my career. So super cool story about the, the program too, like kind of following Ferris's, like, um, Tim Ferriss's uh, advice there and, yeah. and, and implementing it. Some that you just, like when I'm talking to you, Dre, some that sticks out to me is the fact that you implemented the feedback. Like so many people will read books or they'll w- listen to motivational speeches and they'll do this and that, or look at this or that. And they never implement anything. Like they just don't implement it. They just, they, Oh, it's a hoorah moment, but then they don't implement it. Like, Oh, go do this. Like, I, Oh, I could do all this. I could put a, a YouTube video out there. I could do this, 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 but they never do it. You did it. And then you started to see what could come of it. And I think that's really awesome. And I respect the hell out of that. Um, the hell out of you for doing that. I should say now, we are done with professional basketball, but you're still utilizing what you learned there. You got a yep. YouTube channel. Talk to us about your entrepreneurial journey and what has you know, transpired since then in 2015 to 2020, where we're at right now. 
what has happened in your professional career? Um, you mentioned you wrote a book. You still got a YouTube channel. You got dreallday.com. Let's talk about all the things that you're doing right now so that we can kind of see what you were able to leverage with your basketball career now moving into the professional side. Sure. Well, if I go back again, another layer to the story was around that same time, 2009, 2010, players would, and mind you, at this point, all I'm putting out are basketball videos on YouTube. I'm talking literally on the basketball court, me practicing basketball, and I would just voice over telling them what I'm doing. And then I would start promoting my programs, of course, along with that. And at one point, somebody said, well, Dre, you know, actually, Amazon KDP had come out, and I realized I could publish my own book. So I wrote my first book, Buy a Game. That was in 2011. And I was actually giving that book out for free on my website, and I wasn't even capturing email addresses. So I probably missed out on about 50,000 email addresses that I could have had back in 2011 if I put that book out free without getting the email, without a lead capture. But anyway, then what happened was around that 2009-2010 period, People started asking me because I started telling my story in videos here and there. I do a commentary video and tell people, hey, I didn't play on my high school team until I was a senior and I walked on in college. Now I'm playing overseas, but right now I'm unemployed. So that's why you see me in this empty gym every day. So players would start asking me because a lot of them related to my story. You know, something that I tell basketball people all the time is that for every one LeBron James, there are a million Dre Baldwin's when it comes to at least high school level. So there are a lot more players who can relate to me than can relate to LeBron or Kobe or Michael Jordan. So a lot of these players will relate to me and say, Dre, well, look, I didn't make my high school team either. I didn't play high school at all, Dre, but I'm trying to walk on in college. Or I barely played in college like you, Dre, but, you know, I'm trying to play overseas. How do I do it? So there are a lot of players who will come to me with these stories. A lot of them don't make it. A few of them do, but a lot of them don't. But when they saw me, they saw hope. So players would ask me, Dre, well, what keeps you showing up to the gym every day to work on your game when you don't even know if or when you're going to get another job? Or Dre, you know, I see you practicing all the time and I do the same thing. But when I get in the games, I lose my confidence. I get nervous and I get performance anxiety. How can you be confident in the game the same way you're confident in an empty gym? Or they would say, Dre, you know, I got cut from a high school team like you, but I feel like quitting. You kept going. What kept you going? Or they would say, well, Dre, you got on overseas despite playing at a D3 and not playing your senior year. How'd you get your foot in the door? So these questions led to me creating the framework for what I do now, which is this whole philosophy called working your game. Discipline, showing up every day, doing the work. Confidence, put yourself out there boldly and authentically. Mental toughness, to continue showing up, doing the work, even when the success has not occurred. And personal initiative to make things happen instead of waiting for things to happen. So that framework, that foundation for that was laid about 10 years ago, 2009, 2010. So by 2015, or another thing, 2010, I started putting out these videos called the weekly motivation. Every Monday, I would just talk to the camera like I'm talking to you. This is the first time I would just talk to the camera on a regular basis. So I did weekly motivation. I would just take some mindset idea that I would just think up right there on the spot, turn on the camera and talk about it for three to five minutes every Monday. I did the weekly motivation for about 400 weeks in a row. And that, those videos became the foundation for what I do now, for my podcast, for my book, Work On Your Game, for the stuff that I talk about now online, for the people that I help that don't even play sports. So I knew by 2015, I had an audience of people who I would have an audience of people who did not play sports, were not trying to play sports, but when they heard what I had to say, they realized, yes, you came from sports and you might've got this from your sports experience, but the concepts you're talking about here, Dre, people would tell me this in my videos, in my comments, this is life stuff that you're talking about, Dre. This is not basketball, this is life. So I'm glad you're talking about this. I had people who would say, yo, I subscribe to your YouTube and I don't even play basketball. So six days a week, I don't watch anything you put out I just wait for that video every Monday, that weekly motivation, because that stuff can help me in life. I'm, a, I'm an accountant. 
I run a bank. I'm a school teacher. But I watch those videos just to see that thing you put out every Monday. So that planted the seed in my mind to know that I had another audience and I had something of value to offer the world once basketball was over. So from that point forward, I kept writing books. I've written uh, 25 books to date, including my book, Work On Your Game, my first book, Buy a Game. I have done four TED Talks. I do professional speaking, coaching, consulting, uh, of course, digital products, uh, selling stuff online. So that's where I'm at now. I don't know how deep you want to go into that stuff, but that's how I got from basketball into business. My goodness. So that's awesome. So first things first, I got to ask, like the book, Work On Your Game, yeah. is that still available for purchase? And where is it if we can, like, if we can purchase it, where do we get it? Oh, it just so happens I have it sitting right here. So here hey, <laughs> there we use go. The, yeah, use the pro athlete mindset to dominate your game in business, sports, and life. You can get this book. Of course, it's on Amazon, but I would suggest you get it at workonyourgamebook.com because there are some bonuses that come along with this book that you cannot get on Amazon. You can only get them at workonyourgamebook.com. This is our cover book. So that's where you would get the book. All right, so work on your, your gamebook.com. Yes. Okay. I'm going to put that in the description as well here because I'm going to have to read that. I am so stoked that I got to talk to you today, Dre, because you're talking about all this stuff. I'm currently like, see, I'm not a huge reader unless yeah. it's a sports something, right? If it's an athlete right. talking, it's not a biography, or if it's a business book written by someone in the sports world where I can find the comparisons, the parallels between the two. That's just how I am. I've been around sports my whole life. So I, I just, I relate better to that, which is why I'm glad that you're talking about this because like I'm currently reading a book right now called it, it takes what it takes. And I would normally never read a book like this, but it's because it's a, it's like a mental uh, consultant coach for Russell Wilson and other football teams um, and, and football players. And, and he teaches them how to think neutrally and how sports teach you to think neutrally rather than thinking negative or positive, but because it has this sports parallel, mm -hmm. I'm reading it. I'm really intrigued. So I'm going to check out your book as well. What was that? Who's Who's Trevor, Trevor Moad. Let me see if I can just Google it real quick. Trevor, Mo I can't even pronounce his last name. Trevor Ma Moad. It takes what it takes. It takes what it takes. I'm going to look that book up. I never heard of him. Yeah, it's a, I was actually a, a member of my team here at ClickFunnels. Yeah, let's see. Trevor Moad. M-O-A-W-A-D. He's the, the guy that Russell Wilson works with, and it kind of teaches you that next play mentality. Okay, you threw four interceptions. Okay, that is what it is, mm -hmm. realizing the past, moving on to the next thing, which is what you can control this very moment. Don't think okay. too positively. Don't think too negatively. Just try to think neutral. But it, his whole point of the book is, yeah, you don't have to be an athlete to benefit from it. You can be in business, anything, life relationships so the the fact of the matter is you're, you're doing kind of the same concept you're utilizing your sports backgrounds and you're seeing that people can benefit from this they don't have to be sports fans so i'm going to get your book and i hope everybody else does too what's the what's the next biggest thing like if somebody wants to let's say you, you said you did you know some some ted talks you said you you do some you know coaching you do you know speeches speaking engagement, stuff like that, where like if a business wants to get in contact with you, Dre, and they want to find you and, and potentially, you know, pay for you to come and speak for them, where can they find you and, and all the information on you, Dre? Well, my main homepage is dreallday.com. My page for speaking, coaching, consulting, that would be drebaldwin.com. But dreallday.com will send you to drebaldwin.com anyway. So you don't have to try to remember all those uh, URLs. I got a lot of them. Man, you got, so you, got, you got websites for days, man. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty big deal. And uh, where do I get one of those hats? <laughs> uh, you know what? I don't even have these up on my site for sale. But 
Nah, it's all good. I can find one for you. I got some. I got one, one of these days, if you get an extra one or something and you tell me your Venmo, I'll send you some money and plus the shipping and I'll see if you can send me one because I, uh, I always am wearing hats. So I would rep that if you have extra. So just stay in contact with me when the show's over. All right. I got you. Send me your address. I got you. Well, I appreciate you, brother. So Dre, I, I just want to say thank you for, for joining the show today and sharing your experience with us. And hopefully the listeners here that got to, to see this or listen to it, listening to it wherever you're at, whether it's on Facebook, YouTube, or if you're on Apple Podcasts or any podcast platform that you're listening on, I hope you guys thoroughly enjoy Dre's story and that you learned something from it. Uh, hard work, dedication, taking advantage of the moments when they've been provided to you. And uh, then you can utilize what you learned through the sports world into your business journey. So Dre, one more time, man. I just want to say thank you so much uh, for joining the Game Time Guru podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Shane. I hope I was able to provide some value to your audience, man. I hope to hear from everybody who's been listening. Absolutely, man. And if you guys are listening right now, leave a comment. If it's on Facebook, Instagram, or if it's on uh, YouTube, make sure to leave a comment on what you learned and make sure to go get Dre's book, Work on Your Game. Talk to you guys next time. Guys, thanks so much for listening to another episode of my show. Now, if you could go and do me a favor, head over to iTunes, give me five stars and leave me a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your support.